0: We now turn together in the Word of God to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, welcoming those visiting with us today as we continue in this series in Romans chapter 8. There's an outline on pages 4 and 5 if you'd like to reference that as we hear now the Word of God. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. How would you go about explaining to a three-year-old that his baby sister that he's been excitedly looking forward to meeting isn't going to be coming home? that at 39 weeks, she has died in her mother's womb? It's a heartbreaking question. Perhaps it's something you've experienced or similar to it. Professor Jonathan Gibson had to face this and his wife as well when their daughter Leela was stillborn in March of 2016. He wrote a book about it. In the book, which is titled, The Moon is Always Round. We read of how he teaches his son difficult questions and difficult sufferings. When his son Ben asked, Why, Daddy? He said, I don't know why, but the moon is always round. He was referring back to a catechism that he had taught his son a few weeks before. Ben, what is the shape of the moon tonight? Answer the moon is a crescent moon or a half moon or a full moon. Question, what shape is the moon always? The moon is always round. Question, what does that mean? God is always good. Little did he know how important that catechism would be in the life of their family. It became a way for them to discuss the death of this child. The moon is always round. Simple enough for a two-year-old to grasp. Profound enough to move an adult to tears. We have the book. I've not been able to read through it without crying yet. In God's providence, it's an amazing gift to the church. The moon is always round, even when you can't see all of it. And God is always good, even on days and in seasons and maybe even years when you can't see it. We see that today in Romans 8, that God has loving purposes for you, his people, from eternity past to eternity future. We see a chapter, Romans 8, with a set of verses today that are designed to encourage you that you would be built up, strengthened, to love and enjoy the Lord, no matter what is going on now, and in what awaits in the future of your life. First, the goodness of God's purpose. Romans 8.28, one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. What is it telling us? It's teaching us about the comprehensive sovereignty and goodness and love of God. As one man says, here is what this verse means. Our bad things turn out for good. The good things that we have cannot be lost. And the best things are yet to come. We need to first of all, though, understand what this verse is not teaching. Verse 28 is not a cold, philosophical, rationalistic, just get this into your head and everything's good. This is not fatalism. It's not determinism. Paul's not saying just be resigned to bad things. He's also not saying everything will be great in the end, like a Pollyannish, foolish optimism. He's not saying that every cloud has a silver lining, it doesn't. He's not saying that God will make all things become good. This is not teaching that everything works out at all times for good for everyone. This is for those who love Christ, who are called according to his purpose. So if someone dies outside of union with Christ by faith in Jesus, all things eternally are not working for good. He's also not saying here that all things are good, some things are evil. Bad things are not blessings in disguise. They are bad things. Sin, suffering, persecution, sickness. He's also not saying if you become a Christian, things will go better for you and you won't experience bad things. All things working together for good doesn't mean all of our circumstances We'll be good if we love God. All the same things that happen to everyone else will happen to people who love God. Sickness, broken relationships, death. So all things work together for good doesn't mean, okay, better circumstances automatically. Sometimes you are filled with a season of grief and things don't go at all as you hoped. This verse is also not saying, as one man says, that, okay, I didn't get into the school I wanted, so there must be a better school for me to get into. All things work together for good. It's not saying, I didn't marry the girl I wanted to marry, so there must be a better one for me to marry. That's not the promise, is it? If that has happened to you, that's utter grace. But there are plenty of people who didn't get into another school after one said they couldn't get in. Plenty of people who didn't marry someone after someone said, I don't want to marry you. This verse is also not saying that things on their own work together for good. There's no such thing as karma or the force or luck. Things on their own don't work for good. What do they do? They fall apart, including our body. Because we're in a fallen world. This verse should not be used as a slogan. In the hours after someone suffers the death of a spouse, they don't want us to come up to them and say, remember, all things work together for good. That's not at all what this verse is to be said or used for we can misuse this verse when we read it individualistically thinking okay something bad happened here so in the next week something good must be coming or in the next month i'm going to see why this bad thing happened and then i'll understand it doesn't say that we may not see in this life how this is working out what does this verse mean We know. Isn't that important in light of the context? Last time we saw, there are things we don't know. We struggle with how to pray for God's will to be done. Remember that? Now he says you can have assurance, Christian. Certainty. The providence of God. All things work together. The almighty, everywhere, present power of God. He upholds heaven and earth. He governs things so that the years that are fruitful and the years that are barren. The times of health, the times of sickness, the times of riches, the times of poverty. Do not come to you by chance, but by his fatherly hand. We know reminds us of suffering. That's what he's been talking about back to verse 17. If anything is going good in your life right now, beloved, it's because God is working it together. The fact that we're here and able to gather on the Lord's day is God's grace and mercy. The fact that there's someone in your life who loves you and will give you a hug today, in spite of my selfishness and sin, that's God working it together for good. If you have food to eat, anything good in your life right now is God's grace to you. What about the other things? As Derek Thomas says, things I don't understand, things I wish didn't happen that do, things that I want to happen but don't, God is at work. John Newton grew up in the 1700s. He was the child of believing parents. His father died when he was young. His mother raised him and taught him the Westminster Shorter Catechism until she died when he was six. He went off to sea, became the most immoral sailor of them all, he says. He was a slave trader in Great Britain. His testimony was, I could never escape what I was taught as a child. The truth of the gospel he was instructed in. The word of God, the spirit of God would not let him go. Andrew Peterson sings a song, Along these lines, you'll find your way. Newton was in a storm at sea one night. He lashed himself to the mast so he wouldn't be swept over. He cried out to God. God spared him. He saved him. He brought him to Christ. Newton became a faithful pastor in Great Britain for over 40 years. Had a huge impact in the life of William Wilberforce and the abolition of the slave trade. At that time, in the life of William Cooper, whose song we just sang, God moves in a mysterious way. He wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton said, Everything is necessary that God sends, nothing can be necessary that God withholds. One man said, At least 50% of our despondency and discouragement isn't that bad things happen to us. It is that we are surprised that bad things are happening to us. We're shocked. We say, well, I love God, so this shouldn't happen. But that's not the promise here. We think that's not how it should be. And we live in a world when something bad happens to someone, what do they do? They sue them. Things ought to go right, they think. Do you remember Joseph? We read part of this to our children last night in a storybook. Joseph's own brothers hated him. They conspired to do away with him. At age 17, they sold him to traitors, who then sold him to a man named Potiphar, who then had Joseph in a very important position as overseer of the house. Then Joseph is falsely accused of rape. He's in prison for 13 years. At age 30, God brings him out of prison. By the time Genesis is near the end, at chapter 50, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for what? Good. What his brothers did was evil, but God had a purpose beyond that. God was keeping his promise to Abraham, ultimately leading to the coming of Christ. God is never culpable for sin. The Westminster says that the first cause of all things is God, but there are secondary causes. Satan, our own sinful hearts. So a human plans evil, but God, at the same event, activates something else going on to overrule it for good. He does no violence to the human will in doing this. It's a mystery. We can't grasp it. But we see it most clearly in light of the gospel itself. Acts 2 and Acts 4 says Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And Jesus was crucified by the hands of lawless men. The most evil thing that ever happened. The innocent son of God is crucified. Is under the sovereign providence of God. The God man dies on the cross in our place. 100% the action of wicked men. 100% God's plan working through those wicked men. For the salvation of sinners. God is working ultimately in his purposes for good. What does that mean in this context? Do you see the four in verse 29? It connects it. God is working for your good to conform you and me to the image of Christ. God is good. God's creation is good. God's redemption is good. Do you remember Lucy, kids? She says, is Aslan safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good, I tell you. He's the king. God is good and glorious. And when he wants to work in your life, what he's doing is to make you more like Jesus. And what this means practically is we begin to praise God by the Spirit of God more often. If anything goes well in our day, we thank God for it. We praise God in it. And when bad things happen like they do, God's Spirit produces patience in us and trust in the Lord. That we might be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and have a firm confidence in our God and Father. That no creature can separate you from His love, dear one, since every creature is in His hand. And without His will, they cannot so much as move. What often happens in the trials of life, the adversities, is God is teaching us patience. And how do we grow? Because we see how patient God is with us. And as Sinclair Ferguson says, we breathe in the family atmosphere. We learn by the Spirit to mimic Christ. Here's an application Ferguson brings. Have you ever been with a Christian, or yourself being this person, who because of something that has happened, they've lost the plot? A fuse has been lit and they've way overreacted. Easier to think maybe of yourself than someone else right here. And then maybe you or that other person realized someone else was nearby, and you or them became flustered, and you said, I don't know what came over me. I'm really a very patient person. Ferguson says, do you know what we want to say at that point? Actually, you're not really a very patient person at all. You're an impatient person whose patience level has never really been tested. It's being tested now. Patience grows through situations that are likely to create impatience in us, he says. When it is tested, the Spirit uses it to mature us. We know all things work together for good. How do we know that? Secondly, the outworking of God's plan. Paul wants your assurance in the gospel and in Christ to grow. He wants you to see the steps that God takes in your life, as one person called the golden chain. Five chains, five mountain peaks to show God's eternal plan at work to make you more like Christ and to bring you to glory. This set of verses, 29 and 30, show you that salvation began with God's eternal decree in eternity past. It is executed through the administration of the covenants. The covenant of grace ultimately fulfilled in Christ, the new covenant in his blood. It's applied to you at the time of conversion. And this brings up a point, as one man writes, you might think today, I don't really care about these things. You might think, I don't like the word predestination. I want to take it out of the Bible. I don't want to think about things that happened in the past. Here's what one man says. If I came up to you today and I said, I'm going to give you $10 million, you would say, that makes me very suspicious. There's no way. But if I pulled out something that could point to the fact that a wealthy relative died and wrote you in the will that you were to receive $10 million, would you then say, I don't care about that decision. That was made a long time ago. It's an old document. It's very contentious. Let's forget about it. Would we say that? No. And this man says, what God foreknew and predestined is... 10,000 times more relevant to our life now and forever than $10 million. This is a precious promise. It says, for those whom he foreknew. What does that mean, verse 29? Some people say, well, it means that God looked down the corridor of time and saw that in March of 2023, Jimmy would trust in Christ and that God chose Jimmy on the basis of what he saw Jimmy would do. In that case, it'd be like watching an old sporting event that already happened. You know the outcome, you know who's going to win, so you pick the winner in advance. That was Back to the Future 2, wasn't it? Remember that? So, this is the idea that God picks the winner. If that's what's being said, do you see what begins to unravel? Salvation by grace alone through faith alone unravels. Because that makes faith a work that we do. That makes grace not the work of God for us in Christ, but something that we, in our own decision, bring to pass. It gives us something about which to boast. Romans 8, 29 is not talking about what God would foresee we would do. It's talking about those that God foreknew, which means foreloved. You see what it says in verse 28? Those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, are the same those he foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. the same group. God foreknew not our actions, but us as persons. Think of Adam and Eve, because there's a connection here with the word foreknow. Did Adam go up to Eve and say, Eve, I know all of these facts about you. And then, voila, she's pregnant. No. right? Adam knew her intimately. He loved her. And the Bible says she conceived and bore a son. God's knowledge of you is personal and loving, not just informational. God set his love and affection on you before the world existed, Christian. Not because he saw something you would do, but while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's plan is directed by love for you. Jeremiah 31, God says, I loved you with an everlasting love. The reason God will never stop loving you is because he never began. Your heart is false. What does that mean? Perhaps more than anything else, this truth breathes assurance in you in the midst of your struggle and sin and temptation and darkness and disappointment. God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. This is the bedrock of contented, assured Christian living. This is the anchor that keeps you by the Spirit attached to God. Not an anchor that keeps you from the storms that crash. But an anchor that keeps you from being sunk by those storms. In the trials you and I face, what you need most is not an explanation of why. But an assurance that no matter what has come or what may come, nothing will separate you from God's love, Christian, in Christ. It's a pill on which to rest your head because Satan wants to sow seeds of doubt in you. If God really loved you, this wouldn't be happening. God must be angry with you, God is afflicting you because he's mad. And what we need is to redirect our thoughts to the love of God in Christ. An everlasting love that has no beginning and has no end. That this impacts our hearts and our minds. It's astonishing, loved ones. It amazes us to think that it's not Christ's death that made the Father love us. It's God's love for us from before the foundation of the world by which he gave his only son. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin in his life and death because the Father loves you from all eternity. You are loved unconditionally. Not in the sense that it doesn't matter how you live. If we live any way we choose, we show that we need to be born again and saved from the coming wrath. Ian Hamilton says. But our Heavenly Father loves even his errant children. And in that love, he will chasten us that we may share his holiness. God's everlasting love for you is not an indulgent love. When parents indulge the follies and sins of our children, we're not loving them, are we? The author says, actually, we're despising them. We're doing damage to them when we fail to discipline them in love. Your Heavenly Father loves you too much not to discipline you and me, in love. Loved with an everlasting love, beloved. The Christian life doesn't rise any higher. There's nowhere to peek behind the curtain and go beyond this. This is your greatest privilege as a Christian. This gives our weary souls rest as we look to Christ. Why are you a Christian today? Because God has done something. In eternity, before there was a world, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God foreknew you. That's the basis of the rest of the chain. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, meaning beforehand, determined destiny. Not based on what he would see you do. But God, before you were born, issued a decree, a plan, and a purpose. This salvation begins in the goodness of God. God is good. He is motivated to save sinners in his love. Not that he responds to something in us. Christ is the center of our election. Naturally, we think about Julia Andrews and think, remember in the sound of music, the captain is in love with her. She says, well, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's how we're wired to think by nature. We naturally feel overwhelmed that a holy, just, glorious God could love someone like me. So we think, I must have done something to earn it, to deserve it. But Deuteronomy 7 says, Israel, it was not because you were more in number than the peoples that the Lord set his love on you. You were the fewest of the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Divine grace doesn't have a reason It reflects the way God is. And when we are humbled to realize this, we give up on ourselves to save ourselves. God saved me apart from my works. He chose me apart from my works. It's all in Christ. It's his work, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. Those whom he predestined He called. We make real decisions in life. We're not robots. But the reason that you trust Christ is because he first loved you. The call came. The outward call of the gospel, that's what Paul is saying. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Rest. That outward call comes, and now by the Holy Spirit, if you believe, it's because an inward call has come. Here's an illustration. Remember Lazarus, kids? He's dead for four days. If you or I were to stand at that tomb after he's been dead and say, Lazarus, I want you to come out of the grave, what would happen? He wouldn't move, would he? The call goes forth, but he's still dead. That's a picture of us in our natural state, dead in body and soul, bound in grave clothes, sealed with a stone. Lazarus does not have the ability to come back from the dead. But if Jesus stands before the tomb, as he did, and he says those same words, Lazarus, come out. The call is effectual. The reason he specified Lazarus is he has the power to raise all the dead so all the dead would have come out at the word of his power. But he says, Lazarus, the powerful call of God, a dead man brought to life. What is a Christian? Someone who has heard the call of God in the gospel and come to Christ in faith and repentance. God can call you when you're in your mother's womb, John the Baptist. God may call you after a long period of conviction of sin and wrestling and doubting and struggling. Maybe you remember your life before you trusted Christ, when you were indifferent, apathetic, totally distracted. But because God loved you and his spirit came forth by his word, you say, I'm a sinner, I was wrong. I was so into myself, God have mercy on me, a sinner for Jesus' sake. Who is entitled to come to Christ? Every sinner, the most vile, the most vicious, have the right to come. The call goes to all. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Here's a picture of this. Imagine a cross with a door on it. Over the door are the words from Revelation 22. Whosoever will may come. The words represent the free and universal offer of the gospel. It's for everyone. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every man, every woman, every child. On the other side of the door a happy surprise awaits the one who enters. From inside, you look back at the door and it says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Those who trust in Christ now will find that lo- God has loved them from eternity past. He has called you, he has justified you. Why is that? Because the people he loves are sinners. He has declared you righteous, not because of what you and I have done. It's not your faith that justifies you. It's Christ, his righteousness. It's imputed to you. You receive it as a gift. In justification, your faith is the empty hand receiving the work of Christ, his blood, his righteousness. This call is so effective that those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, He justified. What does it say next? He glorified. The decree of God renders this certain, even though this hasn't happened yet. The elect not yet born are already glorified according to God's purpose. That's astounding. God speaks of events in the past, eternity, past, foreknowledge, predestination. Events in the present, calling and justification, and now future glorification. That's how great God is. He's working all things for your good. This comforts you. He saves sinners. He doesn't wait for sinners to cry out and come to him if they have enough works or merit to come. If I can just do it myself, I just need a little help. No! God saves helpless, dead sinners through Christ glorified. The day when there will be no more shame over past regrets, no more guilt, no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. God is guiding his eternal plan to this end. That will comfort you that right now he is working all things for your good. Because what's the ultimate answer to what are the good things God is working for you? What's the ultimate? Glorification. God will bring you all the way home. The good in the end is that you will be with the Lord glorified without sin evermore. Dear Christian, God didn't start loving you. He didn't begin to choose you. He has always loved you, and you have always been His in His sovereign purpose. Amen. Let's respond together.